Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Objective Health. So I am your host today. My name is Elliot, and joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug, we have Erica, and we have Tiff. And then in the studio on the mic is Damien. Hello. (laughs) Hello. So... In today's show, we are going to be talking about something which is a topic which is actually very interesting and quite controversial. In the past, uh, with the advent of modern medicine, we've been looking at how we can use drugs to kill off different types of bugs. So we have bacterial infections, we have viral infections, and we also have gut infections like parasites and things. And typically, parasites have been viewed in the in in recent history as um, objectively bad things. So parasites can make people very sick. Typically, if you were to go away to a third world country um, and you came down with some kind of a gut infection, then um, one of the things that your doctor would investigate is parasitic infection. And this is because there are many parasites which can actually make us really quite sick. But on the other hand, kind of in contrast with this, this idea that there are these nasty parasites that come into our body and cause us lots of harm and stress and really ruin our gut health, um, there are, there's another side to that coin, in fact. And it turns out that there are many different other types of parasites which actually seem to have a rather beneficial effect on the human body. And so some of the listeners might have heard of the concept of the microbiome, which is the natural balance of all of the bacteria and even the virus and the different kinds of fungus and to some extent parasites, which naturally occupy the human gut and the rest of the human body. And as part of that, parasites appear to play quite a key role And it's something that has, I think, was poo-pooed in medicine for a long time. Um, But in the past couple of decades has come to the forefront and is actually used as a therapy now, as as we will be talking about. So to cut it short, in today's show, what we're going to be looking at is how certain types of parasites can exert beneficial effects on our gut, on our health, and can actually be utilized therapeutically um, to improve a wide variety of different health conditions. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, fascinating subject. Um, one of the things that kind of uh, inspired us to kind of to, to um, do this as a show, there was an article on um, Aon.co um, called "We Need Worms," and maybe you could actually pull that up, um, Damien. Um, it's written by a researcher named William Parker, and it kind of goes a little bit into the some of the history of some of the, the science that's been going on in this and how kind of he um, kind of came to the conclusion at one point, or not necessarily the conclusion, but the theory that these parasitic worms actually in some cases were playing a beneficial role. And one of the things that he was talking about is how there's a just from a correlational aspect, all these countries that are kind of 
you know, I hesitate to say third world necessarily, but, you know, countries that, that don't have the same kind of uh, level of sanitation and things that um, Western countries do. Um, developing they, nation. Developing nation. That's a better way of putting it. Yeah. Um, they don't seem to have the same kind of autoimmune conditions, asthma, MS, gut conditions and things like that. They don't have the same problems that we do in the West. Um, whereas they do seem to have quite uh, issues with parasites. Um, mm-hmm. So just kind of branching out from there and looking at that kind of correlation led to some very interesting um, research. So it's a very interesting article. I recommend uh, everybody read it, actually. So this is called helminthic therapy, I guess is a scientific term for it. Um, so they're actually using tapeworms, hookworms. I don't know all the different families or um, genus classifications of all these different worms, but hookworms, tapeworms, nematodes, flukes, whipworms. Um, worms. Yeah, pig whipworms. That seems to be the therapy of choice um, because they don't complete their life cycle in humans and you have to redose them. I guess the danger with a lot of these helminthic therapies is that you can give someone a dose of either the actual worms themselves or larvae and they can cause uh, parasitical overgrowth and cause the symptoms that you actually don't want, like the diarrhea and the nausea and various GI issues. But with the pig whipworm, they've found some promise with that. And there's been some studies with that, that it's better tolerated and there's pretty much no side effects. So I guess in some of these experiments, they've been giving people the worm of their choice. Usually it's pig whipworms. They either have them swallow some of these whipworms or they'll um, saturate a gauze bandage with the larvae and put it on your skin and let the, the larvae kind of work its way into your body. And it, it sounds extraordinarily gross. For one yeah. thing, like when you think of your gut, you can't see inside your gut. I think most people if they follow health and if they follow the gut and the microbiome and how it's so important for your health and your immunity, they can accept the fact that there are bacteria in there. They're kind of faceless. As long as they don't grow too much, then you're okay. But to think of worms, worms are just disgusting. <laughs> yeah. They're swarming, they're writhing around, they're moving around freely. They're gross. They occupy like dead bodies and rotting things. And it's just really sick to think of them being in your body. And then it's even sicker to think of purposely infecting yourself with worms. Yeah. I think that there are people who do it. Like maybe they're at the the end of their rope and they've exhausted all of the therapies. But I think that's going to be a big selling point that the you know, maybe you have to overcome that innate fear of squirmy things. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, in the eighties there was like, <clears throat> I don't know if it was an urban legend or if it was a real thing, but people were doing like tapeworm therapy to try and like lose weight. They would purposely yeah. infect themselves with a tapeworm so that they would lose weight. It seems like maybe a, a foolhardy way of <laughs> achieving weight loss. 
Hey, you but, have to wonder because the tapeworm is eating all the nutrients in the food that you're eating, or is it causing like diarrhea and you're just flushing everything out and you can't eat anyway? <laughs> is that what's causing the weight loss? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you could just give yourself cholera, I guess, and then just <laughs> die of dehydration due to severe diarrhea. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting. The, um, that article I was, I was talking about before, the uh, William Parker one, um, he was talking about how all the way back in 1970, there was a guy named Peter J. Preston who was a medical doctor with the Royal Navy, and he reported that 12 naval officers who had suffered from hay fever for some years were free of hay fever after acquiring human roundworm. And they talked about that it, later in 2004, um, a researcher named Rick Mazels um, showed an inverse relationship between helminths and allergies in various human populations. So that was one of the things that I think really started this off um, uh, research into this sort of thing. So that guy Maisel started, um, he compiled an impressive list of studies using laboratory mice showing that helminths uh, attenuate uh, multiple sclerosis-like syndrome, uh, type one diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, ca gastric ulcers, allergic reactions, including re allergic reactions to peanuts. And that's kind of what, what started these things off. The really particularly interesting one in there, I think, is uh, multiple sclerosis. And there's been more research on that as well. Um, but then there was another researcher in 2005, Joel uh, Weinstock, who's written quite a bit about this, actually. And he um, used uh, porcine whipworms to uh, treat patients with uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and yeah, he found that there was an over 50% um, treatment rate, basically, that it was, it was successful in over 50% of the patients. Mm -hmm. um, there were other, I'm just kind of scanning my notes here to see other ones. In 2007, there were other researchers, George Carreal and Mauricio Ferez, and they were doing actually um, research on MS. And they had hundred, hundreds of patients, and they decided rather than infecting them, what they would do is just kind of look at the population that they had and see if any of them actually just got worms. And sure enough, they did. Uh, some of them did. Um, during the study period, there were three clini clinical relapses of MS in the infected group compared with 56 relapses in the uninfected group, showing that in general, the presence of worms offered protection against symptoms of MS. Uh, and they followed them for, for 10 years. Sorry? There was a 2008 study. I don't know if this is the same one that you're uh, referencing, but they had the patients swallow about 2,500 pig whipworms, and they actually did MRIs just to see, like, the, like in MS, the myelin sheath, this coating that goes around the nerves, that gets degraded over time, and it stops the nerves from firing. That's why you have the the inability to move and the inability to control the muscles that is uh, seen in MS. So they did the MRIs on these people and they counted the number of lesions that they had. So at the beginning of the study, the average number of lesions for these MS patients was 6.6. .6. And after the study, the number of lesions dropped to two. So it actually is not just asking people about their symptoms. It's actually you're seeing an improvement on these people's MRIs. And then two months after the study, the people stopped taking the worms. 
and the lesions rebounded and uh, it was an average of 5.8 lesions per patient. So there actually is some scientific efficacy to these uh, studies and it's not just asking people to report on their symptoms. Well, I think it's fascinating how, you know, in these articles that we read, you know, we all think, like you were saying, Tiffany, eaved out by worms and, and um, how they, they have a real symbiotic relationship in the body as long as they don't become out of control. And you see this in nature, too, like, uh, you know, um, worms in the ground and they, they pro provide so much necessary action for the environment as, as far as aeration and eating dead decaying matter. And when you have as in nature, especially in like agriculture or farming, when you have an overabundance of toxic chemical fertilizers, pesticides, the first thing it does is it drives the worms deep down into the earth because they can't survive in that environment. And when you start to rebuild the soil, the worms come back. And there's in some studies, they found that an earthworm can go up to two miles underground and survive until the environment is healthy enough for them to come back. So it's, it's, for me, it was fascinating seeing how this kind of idea can be transplanted into the body as well. Like you can have a a balance or a symbiosis essentially of these types of worms in the body and it's not a problem it's when they're all killed off or they take over that it becomes a problem yeah it's like everything it seems that there's no black and white like in the negative connotations associated with worms or parasites um is you know, it's, it's, it's definitely there. Like whenever I think of worms in my body, it makes me feel kind of repulsed. Um, but actually like if we just use basic kind of common sense and you look at human beings in their natural environment, even something as simple as picking some fruit off a tree or picking some berries or some vegetables out of the soil, um, eating animals, which have eaten vegetables and, and things in the soil, you're likely to have a bunch of parasites. I mean, it would only be natural. It'd be very difficult. And back then we didn't have drugs to get rid of these kinds of things. So our immune system does a bit of the work, but at the same time to state that all parasites, because there are many kinds of doctors out there, natural doctors, so to speak, who will go on a, a complete kind of, um, tirade against parasites basically their aims are the you know the, basically the way that they approach health is that you need to kill off all of the parasites in your body and they come up with elaborate protocols on how to do this and people spend thousands and thousands of dollars on special supplements and special herb herbs and things to and kill zappers. the parasites sorry and zappers I think yeah. some people sell devices where you can like put your hands on it and zap the parasites in your body. Yeah, there's a ma there's a massive market in this in this parasite idea, and I don't discount that. I mean, it's clear that there are parasites which cause humans harm, but at the same time, it's not black and white, is it? And and actually, um, yeah, it, it's it's fascinating how we kind of can live um, in conjunction with these little critters. And they can kind of help us out to some extent. And 
we provide them some food, especially if they're living in the gut, right? So, um, yeah, it, it was interesting for me to kind of get my head around because of this whole notion that that if if there's a parasite, you need to kill it, and and that just seems to be wrong. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting, too, because what they've actually discovered, a lot of these researchers, is that there's actually a communication that's going on between these parasites and the human immune system. You know, so they have a, the ability to kind of like, in a sense, it's kind of like self-serving because they're muting the immune system a little bit to prevent the immune system from attacking them. You know, so it's kind of, in a way, you, you could see it as it's, it is sort of parasite behavior. It's kind of like they're going in and um, they're, they're basically releasing whatever chemicals to try and modulate their immune system so the immune system doesn't attack them. But at the same time, that's actually beneficial to us in many ways, uh, particularly in situations where autoimmune conditions, where the, the immune system is kind of overcharged and over-firing and attacking things it shouldn't be attacking. Um, so they've been doing some studies on uh, celiac, uh, patients with celiac disease, which is uh, an autoimmune condition where the introduction of gluten um, from grains will uh, cause an immune reaction. And they've been getting really positive results with this by having, I think it was specifically hookworms that were um, introduced and that kind of modulated the immune system enough to make it so that they would no longer react to gluten. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. that's crazy. Yeah, I think in that one of those studies with celiac, they uh infected the people with about twenty hookworm larvae. I guess they put the bandage on them and let the larvae go into their skin. And then after that, um they slowly started increasing the the amount of gluten that the uh study participants could eat. And like at the end of the study, the the participants could eat a whole bowl of gluten-containing food and be fine and have no symptoms. Yeah. Thanks to the worms. Yeah. yeah. Well, worms. actually, we've got a video clip, and in it, the guy actually talks about that that study some. So maybe we should play that. Damien, it's the one, uh, the TEDx talk, Worming Your Way to Good Health. Um, okay. Hold the on. First, the that. first clip from that. Yeah. What's that at? Four. 434. It starts at. It's somewhere here. About five minutes. Yeah. Okay. The diseases. So if you think back to the title of my presentation today, Worming Away to Good Health, how can they possibly be good for you? And why, in some regions of the world, are people who live in places of the world like Australia actively going out and trying to become infected with parasitic worms? It's obviously uh, it's pretty difficult to explain. However, there may be a rational explanation for this, and it may be based on where in the world you live, what other ailments you might have, and how many worms you're actually infected with. So I mentioned before some of these autoimmune or inflammatory diseases that are becoming actually quite an epidemic in the developed world, including countries, on, as you can see up here, like Australia, Europe and the US. And these diseases range from asthma to food allergies to inflammatory bowel diseases. And it just so happens these diseases are most common in regions of the world where there are no worm infections, where they've been largely eradicated. And conversely, regions of the world where worms are most prevalent 
there's very little incidence of, of these autoimmune diseases. And this provoked a hypothesis a number of years ago that somehow these worms can protect us against these inflammatory diseases. Or conversely, their eradication from the developed world might have contributed to the rise in these inflammatory diseases. So an idea was conceived that our bodies are just another ecosystem, where the health of this ecosystem is dependent on the range of different things. For example, and deliberately changing this ecosystem by controlled exposure to parasites may be one novel way of treating inflammatory diseases. So, for example, about 10 years ago, uh, this idea was pioneered by uh, researchers like Dr. John Cruz from Brisbane, Australia, as well as Dr. Joel Weinstock from the US. And in these clinical trials, they deliberately exposed people to either hookworm larvae, as you can see on the left, or eggs of the pig whipworm. Tricurus. In these trials, they did it in people with inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD. Now, our intestinal, our intestinal tract should look like something on the left in health. It should be smooth, it should be relatively free of tissue damage, but inflammatory bowel disease, it looks like the picture on the right. There's evidence of severe inflammation and tissue damage, and that causes a range of debilitating symptoms for these people, and there is no real adequate cure. But in these trials done 10 years ago, they showed that this, either exposure to hookworms or whipworms did tend to reduce the severity of inflammatory bowel disease, which is really encouraging. Subsequently, these so-called worm therapy trials have been tried for a number of different diseases, including asthma, autism, multiple sclerosis, and uh, ulcerative colitis, with fairly mixed results, depending on the trial. And it may suggest that, I guess, worm therapy may not be for everyone. But the promise of these trials suggests that, that more work should be done in this area. And in recent years, we did such a trial. We did it in people with celiac disease, which, for those of you who don't know, is a disease which infects the intestine when people eat gluten-containing foods, such as breads, pastas, pizza, beer. Now, in these people, they bravely consented to be infected with 20 hookworm larvae, which were applied to the skin, just as you saw in that video. So these 20 larvae, were put onto the skin, and that's where they begin their interesting journey into the body. They actively burrow through your skin, and they make their way into your blood. They travel around the blood and make their way to your lungs. And they wriggle up and down through your digestive system, where they reach their final home in your intestine. And in this trial, we then deliberately exposed people to gluten as spaghetti. We started at a very low level. These are not worms. We started at a very low level like this two-centimeter spaghetti straw, which you can see in the bowl on the left. But we know that this amount of spaghetti does contain enough gluten to make people sick, some people with celiac disease. But in our clinical trial, we were quite surprised that by the end of the trial, the people who had the hookworms on board were consuming a medium bowl of pasta every day with very little ill effects, with no ill effects. And this was quite fascinating to us, suggesting that somehow the worm is uh, protecting them or developing tolerance to gluten ingestion in these people who normally could not eat gluten and were on a gluten-free diet. And at the end of the trial, all these participants were offered a pill to cure their, uh, cure their worm infections and get rid of their worms, but all of the people declined. They wanted to keep their worms. And it said something about maybe, you know, in low numbers, these parasites may be uh, safe and well-tolerated. That's good. So here's a short but... Oh. Well, maybe we'll look at the worm. 
a little bit graphic video, but this is a video of an endoscopy of one of the trial participants at the end, and it nicely shows two adult worms living in the upper small intestine. Now, the larger worm on top, that's the female, but it's, it's one centimetre long, so this is a, they're actually quite small. But she's filled with blood, so she's just had a meal. And the smaller, smaller worm underneath it there, that's the male, and he's trying to mate, mate with her. And I think it's quite amazing that these one centimetre long worms can pump out ten, the females can pump out tens of thousands of eggs every day. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> Think of worms dating and having sex and having babies. <laughs> 10,000 babies. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy because it's kind of like a, a mix between being really fascinating in that they actually have a very clear, I mean, I hesitate to say cure, but like a very real promising therapy for celiac disease other than just avoiding gluten. And on the other hand, it's like putting worms on the skin to burrow through and then make it into the blood and eventually to the intestine and then lodging themselves on the wall of the intestine and mating and pumping out 10,000 eggs a day. It's like, yeah, like, would would you do it? <laughs> yeah. For pasta? For a bowl of pasta? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> For all the pasta you could eat, ever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think um, that that's the thing. Like, if you've got uh, a condition, um, particularly if you've got something like MS, I mean, you know, celiacs, uh, as you know, terrible as it is, like, you, you can control it by avoiding gluten, whereas something like MS or um, severe food allergies or things like that, a lot of times you can't. So I think um, in, in many of those situations, I think it would probably be, um, you know, sign me up, like throw the worms in there. I'm cool with it. Yeah. Um, like you were saying earlier, Doug, about the, the kind of mechanism of how this works so that <clears throat> I, was, I was fascinated by this because I really wanted to understand, like, how could something as simple as a worm have such... Uh, an amazing effect and like it comes back to that stimulating the immune system in a very kind of minor way so it relates to something called the hygiene hypothesis so this is like a very old kind of theory that was put forth by it's been built on over the years um, many times but it's essentially positing that human beings going into these sterile kind of a sterile modern world where we're everything's antibacterial. We're not coming into contact with bacteria. We're not coming into contact with other natural kind of microbial stresses, which would naturally um, develop or allow, say when you're a child, the way that you are developing immune tolerance and actually a healthy, robust immune system is by coming into contact with many of these, um, these natural kind of... Um, and they're called antigens. So, you know, it could be a bacteria, could be certain types of food, could be soil, could be soil-based microorganisms, could be parasites, anything like that. Um, generally, when, 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 you're, when you're young, when you're building your immune system, if you have constant exposure to this in, in kind of not excessive amounts, but in, you know, in intolerable amounts, then it actually allows your immune system to be able to identify this thing as not necessarily a problem. It's this parasite. This is not an issue. 
um, it, it allows you to essentially build a healthy immune system. And so <clears throat> the hygiene hypothesis is basically stating that human beings, now that we are ultra sterile, we lose that immune tolerance. We lose that kind of that stimulus, which gives us the information to build that immune system to prevent things like developing chronic allergies, to prevent things like developing autoimmune conditions and things. And so this is one of the reasons why, you know, it's, it's a way to explain some of the previous research, which was showing that when you go to places which are like third world countries where their hygiene levels are fairly low and they, the, 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 the people come into contact with many more different types of antigens, natural antigens, that they have lower rates of, um, of autoimmune conditions, low rates of allergies and all of this kind of stuff. And so um, one of the theories for why this helmet therapy is working is that it's actually modulating the balance of the immune system. So the immune system has kind of two main primary or two primary branches. One is to deal with stuff that gets inside cells and the other one is to deal with stuff that is outside of the cells. And essentially what happens is in things like um, autoimmune conditions where the body is is attacking itself, there's an imbalance between these two branches. And the way that it works is that certain cells of the one branch can suppress other cells of the other branch. And so there's like, it's a very kind of, um, it's a very good balancing act that your immune system needs to do to prevent your body from attacking itself, to prevent your body from overreacting to really like benign antigens in the environment like pollen, like pollen's not dangerous, but sometimes the body will react to it. And that's because there's this imbalance in the immune system. And so what these helmets are essentially doing is they are act or they're stimulating the production of certain types of immune cells called regulatory T cells. And these regulatory T cells basically are, are responsible for balancing things out. And so what they're finding is that basically when this helminth or this worm is in the, in the gut, like you were saying, Doug, it's, it's essentially, it's stimulating a very low level immune response. So your body needs to protect itself against it somewhat. But what that is doing is it's having downward kind of effects, like downstream effects on the rest of the, the other immune cells in the, in the entirety of the immune system. And it's interesting because the, you know, most of the, the immune cells in the whole body reside in the gut. So the gut associated lymphoid tissue. And so you're having this very minor stimulus um, in the gut, which is essentially kind of remodeling the entire immune, like the, the immune balance. Um, I guess it's kind of similar to when they use very, very, very low dose peanut oil to cure peanut allergy. It's like you're providing that minor, minor, minor stressor and it's having downstream effects to kind of rebalance everything out. Um, I suspect that this helmet therapy is acting on just so many other levels that we don't even know. I don't, I don't know, but I suspect that there's all kinds of different kinds of communication and stuff. And I just, I just think it's fascinating because it turns everything on its head and, and it makes you really kind of concerned or it makes me concerned um, when the standard kind of protocol in modern medicine is to kill, is to yeah. kill, 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 kill. And it's like when children get worms and it's like, well, 
maybe getting worms is not such a bad thing. Now, that's not to say that there are not some pretty nasty parasites. Like I've dealt with some, like some people who have chronic diarrhea, mimicking kind of dysentery, are very sick. And then you look at their stool sample and it turns out there's a pretty nasty parasite like Cyclospora or Giardia, like Protozoa or something. These, these are nasty ones. But then again, in some people, they're not. So there's, there's, there also seems to be this kind of very individual aspect of this as well. And it's interesting because in these trials, some people don't respond very well to it. And actually, some people go to, to have this helmet therapy done and they actually have to take a, like a strong antiparasitic afterwards because they find that it gives them like chronic diarrhea for, for a year or two. So again, knowing who would respond well to this is I, I guess it's individual and I'm sure that eventually they will come up with some pretty good parameters to be able to kind of identify, okay, so if you've got this condition, if you've got this particular composition or this, you know, makeup, then you will respond good to this and right. other people might not, but yeah, yeah, it's, I just find it really cool. Yeah, I agree. It, I, I think that that's really interesting too, is that it is, it isn't kind of a one size fits all kind of thing. It's not like a, a like a pharmaceutical intervention where you just like everybody responds to a certain pill in a particular way for the most part um it is kind of it does seem to be kind of much more individual um it's interesting too that um in some situations with the or what some researchers have found is that the type of helminth doesn't necessarily matter in some situations it's kind of like it's not like if you use this helminth it'll work and if you use this one it won't um there seem to be several that will result in the same sort of um, results, well, the same, the same sort of beneficial results. So there's obviously clearly a lot that we still need to learn about this. And probably for that reason, it's not a good idea to just start, you know, swallowing worm eggs or something like that, just because there does seem to be a lot more research that needs to be done. Well, there are uh, certain researchers or scientists who realize the benefit of helmet therapy, but they're actually not wanting to use the worms because of the obvious gross out factor and other unknowns that can happen when administering this therapy to people. They actually want to somehow harness the anti-inflammatory signals that the worm prompts the human host to put out and see if they can use that to treat autoimmune conditions. I don't really hold out much hope for this therapy. And you know, well, with the pills, but I think with the worms, since it's easier, but it's not a big money maker because you can't right. patent worms. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that's 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 a big thing. I mean, it is kind of like the typical pharmaceutical model, right? Like they find something natural that works, and then they distill it down to the single molecule that they they think is what's effective, right? So you know taking curcumin out of turmeric or something like that, rather than using the, the whole plant, they're going to they're gonna distill it down to what is that particular molecule that is doing what is, is happening here. But with the, the, the limitation here I see is that it, it is involved, like we've been talking about, that communication between these helminths and the immune system or and the rest of the microbiome. Like there, there's clearly this kind of communication going on and things are happening there. Um, so to think that you can just introduce a molecule 
and get that same result. I mean, I don't know, obviously. I mean, they, they, there's still a lot of research that has to be done, but I, I suspect that you're not going to see the same kind of um, beneficial effect without having that, that helminth there. I could be wrong, but uh, that, that's my suspicion. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, it could, I mean, be something entirely not related to what the worm is it is having the host body do. It could be like some kind of electronic signature of the worm that's influencing your electronic signature. I mean, who knows? But this brings to mind, like you said, about, um, you know, maybe if a kid comes down with a worm or something, maybe the first reaction shouldn't be always to kill it. But I always think about this with pets. Like when you get a puppy or something, you know, make sure your puppy's dewormed and I don't know much about this, but I always thought like maybe they're supposed to have a little bit of worm. In. I mean, animals, they get allergies too. Um, they get autoimmune conditions. So maybe if you wipe out all of their worms, you're setting your animal up for failure as far as, you know, health wise. But um, I could be wrong about this, but it's just something I always wondered about. Like, why do you automatically have to kill every worm and the the dog or the cat is not sick yeah i mean surely if the worms were so bad then the body would would have kind of innate built-in mechanisms to clear these worms out and maybe it does you know maybe maybe if the body was working in a better state you know functioning optimally maybe it would be clearing out um mm -hmm. But I mean, in humans, uh, the immune system naturally is able to keep the growth of these at bay. Mm. So, it, you know, the, the, if in a uh, kind of function, functioning healthy immune cells in the gut can actually modulate what grows, what doesn't grow, release certain antiparasitic factors naturally. Like we have our own antibiotics so to speak in our gut which can be effective antiparasitics and so i would imagine dogs have that as well so i completely agree tiff i mean if, if par parasites were so bad then why did why did we evolve with them you know yeah how did all the dogs and cats before this uh warming therapies <laughs> came about how did they survive yeah. how did they pass on their genes mm. Yeah, Seems question. like just a way to s just to sell your product, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. At all. Well, it's kind of back to that yuck therapy uh, aspect you were talking about earlier, Tiffany. Like you know, especially with um, children being around animals, and um, you know the possibility that uh, the animals could pass on these parasites to children, and. Um, I know from having kids, my children got pinworms a lot as when they were young, partially because they were outside barefoot and it was coming in through their feet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they would give, uh, I can't remember the name of the drug that, or the uh, um, pinworm treatment. It was something like uh, abaldazole or something to get rid of it. <clears throat> But one thing I did notice is that most of the kids that were uh, barefoot and getting these types of worms grown up now as adults do not have allergies or asthma or autoimmune issues, you know. So the um, 
the doctor's recommendation was, well, make sure the kids wear shoes when they go outside. But I mean, that kind of goes back to what you were saying, Elliot, about that hygiene hypothesis. Like if we just keep these kids sterile, you know what I mean? They're never going to be exposed to anything. And maybe that is why we're seeing this rise in all of these autoimmune issues, at least in civilized countries or Western countries, because they're not being exposed at a young age and building that symbiotic relationship with these parasites that from our research shows that do have a beneficial purpose. I don't think they're here for no reason. (laughs) Yeah, if you consider that people have always walked around barefoot, they've farmed the soil, had their hands in the dirt, Uh, and they never got sick. So there's definitely has to be some kind of benefit. Maybe we don't fully know what all the benefits are, but then I kind of forgot where I was going with this, but I was going somewhere. (laughs) It'll come to me. (laughs) Well, it's kind of interesting because it seems like the, the hygiene hypothesis has some, some weight behind it now, even though at first I think there was a lot of resistance to it. Um, but it seems like people have kind of accepted it as far as bacteria go. Like we, there's so much research being going on with the microbiome, beneficial bacteria, all that sort of thing, recognizing that things like antibiotics, antibacterial soaps, all this, you know, um, additives that we use to sterilize everything, um, are actually quite bad and that you, you, it's important to have this kind of relationship with your microbiome, so to speak. That sounds a little flaky new agey, but you need to have this kind of relationship with your, with your microbiome. Well, it's interesting that now it seems that um, this parasite level, and it doesn't even seem right to call them parasites because there's clearly like a symbiotic relationship going on, but maybe if we just say like worms, intestinal worms, there seems to be this kind of relationship like that. It's an extension of that microbiome kind of thing that, um, you know, you are supposed to have some of these things there. Um, that they do actually have this symbiotic um, beneficial effect. So it's, it's, it kind of seems like another level to the, the, the hygiene hypothesis and the, the, what the studies on the microbiome have done. It really seems like at a microscopic level in the intestines, it's just like this massive ecosystem that has so many different component parts and they're all working together and they're communicating in different ways and some of them are fighting, some of them are getting along and having a great old time. Like there's just so much going on there and they're just like really just scratching the surface of this. So the fact that, you know, if you told me 10 years ago that uh, parasitic worms are a good thing, I, I probably would have laughed at you. But at this point, it doesn't surprise me at all. It actually, it, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting how everything's coming back to that again, you know, that now it's, it might not be as bad as we thought. Don't just nuke them all and kill them all. There is a symbiotic relationship and it's not just humans. It's with every animal in every environment. There's more parasites than any other thing out there, you know, and somehow they all work together and in uh, nature, they've studied how if you lose these parasitic worms that the whole ecological system starts to fall apart. So they, they do serve a purpose in maintaining some sort of balance. Mm-hmm. And it's up to human beings to help, help your body actually maintain that balance. So 
Like if you think of a child that's born or an animal, small animal, puppy or kitten that's born and deworm the animal or if the baby comes down with some kind of parasitical infection and essentially deworm the kid. And then after that, you go along and you feed the child or animal highly processed foods, uh, foods that have like no natural flora in them. They don't eat a lot of they animals may be consumed. They don't eat any fresh uh, produce, no fresh fruit. They're outside, you know, not much of the time at all. They're always wearing shoes, so they don't have a chance to actually acquire a lot of these naturally occurring parasites. That's really just setting people and animals up for failure once again. But also prolonged medical intervention, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe that's, I can't say that it's a conspiracy, like, oh, let's you know, kill all the worms so people will get sick and die. But it seems like there are many forces that are conspiring against human beings and animals to a certain extent to having the full range of health that they should have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we've just had it f- so wrong for so long, it seems. Like mm-hmm. the, just, <clears throat> it's kind of like, I, I, yeah, I kind of see it as kind of growing out of the whole vision of nature as being this battleground, right? Like everything is fighting for survival. It's because of the Darwinism, basically, like survival of yeah. the fittest. Everything is fighting each other constantly. Like there's a constant battle going on between predator and prey and all these different things and it's like it, it's just this war analogy and i think that that what people are are starting to realize now is that there is a lot more symbiosis going on that it's not necessarily just fighting for survival all the time that there's a lot of cooperation that actually goes on on multiple levels within ecosystems so yeah i think i think that maybe we're we're kind of in the midst of a paradigm shift in some way and the battle analogies don't necessarily work anymore. It's more, mm-hmm. it's, it's much more cooperative, much more symbiotic. Yeah. Declaring war on things never really helps. Like if you look at the war on drugs or the war on cancer yeah. or the war on that disease, it never leads to anything except more disease. So I think it's time to shift the par- paradigm and stop declaring war on parasites. I mean, we've said multiple times during the show that some parasites can overgrow in the system and cause a problem, but there are other parasites who actually are beneficial and they need to be treated with respect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think if you've got a Giardia infection or something like that, then obviously, uh, you need to treat that. <laughs> Don't hold on to it just because you think it might be have some kind of benefit. But um, yeah, the idea of like obliterating every single worm, every single microbe is—it's. Uh, I don't think it's helping anybody. Well, I don't think you can even really necessarily do that. I mean, yeah, I know um, in the health industry, you know, they have all these supplements, Paragon, and do a parasite cleanse and stuff like that. But if you folks have ever had a phlebotomy test done. That's where they look at your blood under a microscope. Um, 
it's fascinating to see how much parasites you have in your blood. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of creepy at the same time, but you can see uh, right there under a microscope so much life going on just in your blood. And I think it's unrealistic to think that you can eliminate all of that and there's yeah. not going to be some sort of negative consequence as a result. Yeah. And the thing is, though, the people who do that, like, that's the dark field microscopy, right? Or the live cell microscopy? Is that the one you're talking about? Where you can actually see the cells and the living things and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I've noticed that the, the practitioners who do that kind of thing a lot of times are like, oh, you've got parasites. You need to take this uh, parasite cleanse or something like that. Or you've got candida. I can see it in your blood and all this kind of stuff. So I think that um, they still kind of have the wrong... Um, attitude towards these sort of things like really they should be like oh yeah you got some parasites there but maybe they're doing some good you know really like kind of looking at there's really no way of knowing like what your beneficial range of parasitical infection would be versus another person's Mm -hmm. so to describe like this one size fits all whack them all kind of therapy for everyone is wrong headed yeah I agree Right. Um, so, <clears throat> looks like we're coming up on our time. Does anyone else have anything cool to say about helmets or parasites? Is there anything, anything we haven't spoken about up to this point? Only that I have a newfound appreciation for critters that live in the body. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. think about them too, but as long as I know that they're okay <laughs> and they're not... Uh, you know, causing any damage, then I'm fine with it. And if I were really ill, I would consider that, but it's not, I don't think that this therapy is going to be like something that's mainstream. I mean, it it took a long time to even get to the fecal transplants and for people to even consider that as a therapy. So swallowing worms or letting them burrow into your skin. uh, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and the thing is, well, kind of back to oh, what you were saying, Doug, in that first article, they mentioned the fecal transplants in comparison to the therapy with worms. How, because it's not a big profit money maker, that it probably won't be researched extensively. And because, as you said, Tiffany, it can't be patented. But it's nice to know that there's people out there that are looking at this in this way and doing the research to find out that it could cure things like MS and autoimmune disease. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because the fecal transplant thing, although it has, has certainly become more accepted, it's still fringe. Like it's still not the kind of thing that your average doctor would, uh, would be recommending. Um, you know, and considering the number of people who are, are dying still from C. difficile infections, um, so yeah, like even even the, the fecal transplants isn't um, widely accepted. So the the idea of like parasite therapy, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's 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 a long way off, if ever. It might just end up being a kind of a fringe thing all the time. Yeah, and it's it's currently quite expensive, right? Yeah. So it's like three thousand dollars a treatment or something. Yeah. Yeah. And does anyone know how many treatments you need to have? 
Well, for some of them, it's like Tiff was saying with the, the ones that don't actually complete a full life cycle within the human, you have to keep on taking them indefinitely. It's like, uh, I think it was like once a month or something like that. You have to keep on taking a solution of the, of the eggs. Um, yeah, I don't know if they're going to get to a place where they have ones that will complete the life cycle within the human, but the immune system is enough to keep it under control and not allow, allow for a full-blown infection. I don't know. I think, they, I think they still have a lot of work to do on that. It's $3,000 a pop if you have to do it every month. That's, that's yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. Well, maybe there'll be something like medical tourism where you could go to a country where they still have these types of parasites. You know, you you think about going somewhere like Mexico and drinking the water and how people yeah. get sick. Maybe, you know what I mean? There'll be it'll become such a need that people will risk going to a another country in it, you know, a semi-controlled environment and be exposed to these things to build their immune system. I mean, yeah. That might be another option. <laughs> yeah. But they'll start selling like bottled, you know, developing country water. Indian tap water. Indian yeah. tap water. Yeah, exactly. Indian tap water, Mexican well water. Straight from the Ganges. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay, then. So, um, yeah, I think that was a good way to round it off. Um I think uh, parasites are not always bad. In fact, worms, worms can be good, right? Worms can be good. Worms can be good. Worms can be good. That's the mantra. Um, so we've got a health health segment today from Zoya. Um, if we could put that one on, let her roll. Welcome to the pet health segment of the Objective Health Program. This time we are going to talk about ghosts. There are stories that some pets are able to see things that humans can't. So here is a short video about that. Also, don't forget to stay until the end and hear an intriguing and heartwarming story about the ghost dog. Enjoy! It's a common belief that many animals can sense the arrival of an entity from beyond the grave and attempt to alert humans. Perhaps your dog barks at a blank wall or your cat stares at something you can't see. It's a known fact that no animal sees their surroundings in exactly the same way as humans. Does that mean they're able to see a ghost when we can't? These are the five animals which are most commonly believed to have psychic abilities. Horses start our list of the five animals which are said to have a sixth sense, according to a survey of 2,000 pet owners. Some owners describe how their horses avoid certain places or behave strangely in areas where someone has died. Four in ten people surveyed believe their four-legged friend has special powers to sense supernatural activity, and a third believe their pet protects them by fending off ghosts and spirits. Guinea pigs came in fourth place in the list of the most psychic pets. Rabbits come in at number three on the list. 
Perhaps your pet bunny has backed away from nothing or had bristling of the neck fur when sensing a spirit nearby. As well as sensing spirits, a massive three quarters of all pet owners believe animals can sense or predict illness. This may be true as some animals have an incredible sense of smell that allows them to detect subtle changes in our bodies without us even knowing anything's wrong. A quarter of all cat owners surveyed have seen their feline friends hissing or growling twice in the past four weeks. One cat owner claimed to have seen a door swing open and their cat follow an unseen presence around the room with its eyes. Cats are blessed with amazing night vision. Could this allow them to see things we can't? Dogs are considered to be the most psychic animal. Those surveyed believe their pooch typically alerts them to a paranormal presence by barking or growling at an empty space. Over a quarter of those surveyed said they witnessed their dog barking or staring at nothing at least three times in the last month. One dog owner told how their canine companion regularly senses a kidney infection by putting their paw on their owner's tummy. married we were at a street fair and a woman was holding this lost dog in her arms we had just bought a house and we were so happy and we thought we can help with that dog so we took the dog home and we named him Spud. We had three kids and they grew up with Spot. he was the greatest dog he was so much fun and he was just part of the fabric of our everyday life Spot and how old are you now and when he passed away, we buried him on the hill behind the house, and there he was. Some years later, we moved out of that house, and we were at a nearby park, and we happened to run into the people who bought our house, where Spot was buried. And they said, well, we wondered if your dog was a white terrier with a black spot on him. Two separate people on two separate occasions have seen a dog, almost like a hologram, at the end of the hall. We were just like, oh my goodness, that has to be, that has to be Spot, a spirit of Spot down the hall. Isn't that bizarre? I know that they truly saw Spot, because how else could they describe a dog that they'd never met? I'm not exactly sure what to make of it, but if he was coming back to check on us, I just wanted Spot to know that we were okay. Spot was just such a part of us, you know. Maybe he didn't want to let us go. Yeah. I'd like to have a psychic hamster. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I was surprised surprising. that guinea pigs were on the list there. Because I had guinea pigs yeah. at one point in my life, and they didn't seem particularly psychic. They didn't seem particularly anything. Maybe that's why they squeak so much. <laughs> yeah, maybe. They're alerting you to psychic presences. <laughs> right, okay then. So, uh, yeah, if that's all for today... And I guess we should wrap it up. So to all of our listeners, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Objective Health. Um, make sure to tune in next week. If you can, like the video, 
share it if you found it helpful and subscribe to our page by clicking the red red button down below um yeah i'd like to thank our hosts doug erica tiff and then damien on the mic and uh yeah we'll we'll see you next week thanks for tuning in thanks guys Bye. Bye. bye